We've been successful with our customers getting new class plans and rate filings approved. In to date, we've been approved in multiple states uh, to actually price insurance policies with our data. Hello, Matthew Grant here. Great to have you back. Or if this is your first time listening, I'm delighted to have you join us. Well, with winter approaching us in London and the nights drawing in, we're importing a little bit of sunshine by talking to some old friends from California. This week, it's Ryan Cottestetti, founder of Cape Analytics, and described by one well-known industry figure as their favorite CEO. Now, Cape was founded in 2014 to help companies identify building characteristics based on aerial imagery, which is then analyzed by CAPE. Until now, they've been focusing on North America, providing their data to insurers and reinsurers, but they've successfully crossed that dreaded Jeffrey Moore chasm on the technology adoption curve and now have a number of well-known insurers and reinsurers as clients. We're also delighted to welcome Cape Analytics as a member of Instec London, and we'll be hosting a breakfast event for them in January when they're coming over here. So if you are an insurer, a reinsurer or a broker, and you're interested in attending, do let us know. Contact details will be in the episode notes. So Ryan, great to have you joining me today. Uh, I think you're calling in from California or your, your head office? Yeah, that's right, Matthew. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm based here in, in Silicon Valley in our headquarters office in Mountain View. Good. Well, as we roll into winter, it seems to be a lot of uh, very sensible place to base yourself. And actually, we first met in California last year at the, the PIR conference. That's right. That's been a, a conference we really enjoy. And, and recently, we've become a sponsor. And, uh, and so I'll be there again this, this year in just a couple of weeks. Great. I think I described to somebody recently as the, uh, the thinking person's in tech connect. <laughs> it's a smart group. It's a, it's a much more intimate setting. Um, we've been there, I think, probably going on four or five years now, and it's one of the conferences we really enjoy. So, Ryan, you started off your, your life as a mechanical engineer as well. It's, it's really encouraging how many people, given that we both did this, seem to have uh, ended up in really interesting roles and they started off as engineering. Uh, but then you, then you went on to BMW, and now you ended up in insurance. And I guess most people would say that would be a fantastic place to not just start your career, but end your career working for BMW. But just maybe interested just to hear a little bit about the journey that took you from BMW to Cape Analytics. It's not the, the most linear path you'd, you'd imagine at first. I've had a few stops along the way now. I, you know, been involved in early stage kind of technology companies, been involved in venture capital investing. You know, I, I view what we're doing as Cape is sort of coming full circle insofar as, you know, there's a real... We have a bunch of great, talented engineers, lots of PhDs in our company, but there's a, there's an embedded desire to really solve meaningful problems with with gravitas, and they they deal with the complexities of the real world. And I think, in that sense, at least, you know, automotive industry, you know, uh, sports cars or racing, you deal with a lot of those kind of solving real hard technical challenges, but but that have kind of real impact. And and in that sense, I think, I think I, I see a lot of commonality. Insurance, in a sense, having a role to help people understand the risk and therefore be able to reduce risk is something people don't always think about immediately, but you know, it has a, obviously has a really big impact on that. And we'll talk a bit about the wildfires in a minute and some of the things you've been, been doing there. But probably, first of all, just useful to get a description of what CAPE does. A couple of different things. First of all, there was more and more 
access to geospatial imagery. So satellites, drones, aircraft, uh, were capturing more and more imagery. And um, about 2012, there were some major breakthroughs in deep learning and artificial intelligence, specifically around extracting, using computers to automatically extract information from imagery. And so we basically took these two tailwinds and said, where can I apply massive access to geospatial imagery plus deep learning analysis on that imagery, where I provide a, a real answer and a hard ROI to, to a real customer need? We quickly focused exclusively on, on insurance and reinsurance. A lot of people, or a lot of people claim to be able to use satellite imagery and drones and aircraft to capture data. And it seems like the cost of acquiring that is going down. I mean, how, how do you distinguish yourself in terms of what you're doing versus all the other organizations out there? When we started CAPE, there was, you know, InsureTech was not in the popular vernacular. We, we started in 2014, I think. We've run 80% of the U.S. population in terms of physical property risk. And consequently, since we're able to cover 80% of the U.S. population and go back multiple years in time, we're able to run loss impact studies that form the basis of actually demonstrating the monetary value associated with the risk answers that we're able to deliver. You have primarily been looking at aerial imagery. and how, I mean, how much can you tell from aerial versus having to do a kind of ground survey or using, I mean, do you use third-party data to complement what you're learning from the aerial imagery? Or can you just do it from the, from the air? For us, it's really a question of what are the unique things we can do that are differentiated and high impact? Uh, and so we started by exclusively extracting data from imagery. So there's a handful of folks out there that, you know, large incumbents and otherwise that, you know, have a veneer of geospatially derived data, when in practice what's happening is they're delivering geospatial imagery and they're simply appending data source from tax assessor data or, 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 or other structured data sources. And that really misses the whole, the whole value impact because there's a ton of value when you can capture a more recent image and understand what's changed and what's new about a given property. And so that's really been where we've focused. Now, we do append more and more data or look at different alternatives, but the critical distinction is I think a handful of folks out there, you know, even large entities have really been doing for a while what I'd consider a, a bit of a bait and switch, you know, showing a geospatial image, but then appending data from a tax assessor file, which, which may not be up to date or as current as the imagery and often is not. So that's, I think that's probably an important distinction for the industry to understand. Are you tapping into other third-party sources of data? I mean, beyond just tax information, but yeah, are. we're increasingly we're increasingly doing that. You should expect to see more and more of that from us. So we have we've announced recently a partnership with Hazard Hub. So we're delivering hazard data for some time. We've been delivering other third-party data sets, and and really the focus for us is not simply to append additional data, but it's for us to apply our our unique data set plus our unique kind of machine learning and data science expertise to really improve the overall quality and accuracy of some of those other data sets and, and apply basically the same thinking, rigor, and processes that we apply to deep learning-derived imagery extraction so that we get a, a more and more complete data set that we deliver to our end customers. It's just really interesting. So you sort of cut your teeth initially with the satellite imagery, but you, what the lessons learned from that means you can add value to the third-party data and then presumably link it up with what you're getting 
from the RLMG. Okay. And then, I'll, give really, I'll give you a really good example of that. With every data point we deliver, not only do we deliver the, uh, a specific score, let's say a roof condition rating, but we deliver a confidence score or basically a, an actuarially sound probability of that class label being correct. And what that means is now an actuary can take all of our scores for all of our locations and intersect that with the probability uh, of that score and get an accurate weighted average. And you see that across an entire book and, and it holds. So it's what I call an actuarially sound approach to confidence scores. For a long time, this industry, frankly, was, was data was delivered with no confidence associated. And increasingly, as confidence scores have started to be delivered by some vendors, it's really a heuristic, like highly confident versus not very confident, as opposed to some, you know, real probabilistically, rigorously modeled confidence score. Makes complete sense. I mean, that's from the catastrophe modeling days. That's what people were looking for. They, they, everyone recognizes it's not perfection and they need to get the visibility and the uncertainty because they can, they can work with that. But presumably you still need to validate the data in some way. I mean, the, the, I guess the longer you're in business, the sort of the more data you've got compared to real life experience from claims or surveying. But I mean, how do you, if you're going into a client and they want to sort of validate your data sets, other than them going out and surveying individual properties? And how do they get confidence? We have the benefit of having started doing what we do before anybody else. And I think the highest quality team, the largest customer base, uh, and some of the most rigorous solutions in the industry. And, and consequently, we've built very strong partnerships with our, with our customers. We consider them clients. We treat them as clients. We have very collaborative interactions. We've had the privilege of customers sharing significant am amounts of their lo own loss history information with us, which we've then been able to back test and validate our variables and demonstrate the predictive power. Uh, so that's been extremely valuable for us. Uh, and again, we've done this kind of on a national basis across the continental U.S. with, with some of the largest carriers uh, who, who are our customers. That's been a big thing for us. So when, when we engage with a new carrier, we're able to show them quantifiable, rigorous loss history analysis, some of which we've published that's basically industry-wide. Uh, and we're also able to run a loss impact study directly on their particular book of business. Yeah, no, that's a huge benefit. And I think, again, it just plays the fact that you've got credibility and therefore people are willing to share data with you. And I think that's hard for someone, a company to do if they don't have the confidence. I mean, an insurance company is understandably getting more and more careful about who they, who they share the data with. But in terms of how people are using it, is it more on the risk selection? And in the US, you're slightly limited about how much people can price just given that it's a regulated market or is it more on the, the portfolio side that people are using this information it's really important to distinguish between primary carriers and and reinsurers we bring more accurate information that is proven to be relevant to assessing risk and that at the end of the day is fundamentally what what this industry is about is assessing a given risk and and, and coming up with the correct price for it or you know in the in, in the event you don't have pricing flexibility as you mentioned in in, in, in some, you know, regulated markets in the U.S., you make an underwriting decision. Do you want to take that risk or not? Um, if you can't price it appropriately, maybe you don't take it. The specific use case and the way that manifests, I think, has slightly different flavors for carriers versus reinsurers. And, you know, depending on your particular business strategy within a carrier, you might use it differently. So I'll just give you a few examples. An obvious thing for a carrier to do, you know, typical U.S. carrier renews about 85% of their portfolio each year and then 
replaces about 15% of it. The first place that they, they, they can look at us is on the 85% of their portfolio, they're likely to renew. They can use us to understand what's changed and identify the risks they want to pay the most attention to and determine whether or not they want to renew. So of the 85% they're going to renew, how do they figure out which 85% they, they actually want to renew? And they can actively look to, to ameliorate some of the riskiest business on their books and do this kind of at a scale and cost that they've never seen before. The second big bucket is on the new quote. So as you look at new business coming in the door, you can apply some of our, our data is available instantaneously. Actually, all of our data is available instantaneously. And carriers, for some of that, they typically have to wait until after they've bound a policy to inspect a property and, and understand some of that information. So by us delivering the same or similar information instantly upfront at time of quote, it allows carriers to better price, better underwrite, fewer post-binding adjustments, easier kind of process workflow. Um, and so that's, that's pretty important. But then there's additional use cases. Uh, one of the ones I'm most excited about is because we have the rigor that we described and the, the proven impact that we've described, we've been successful with our customers getting new class plans and rate filings approved. In, to date, we've been approved in, in multiple states uh, to actually price insurance policies with our data. Conversely, we deliver our data directly to reinsurers who then use this to inform uniquely their perspective on, on a seed and portfolio. So that, that rate filing one, I mean, you, you mentioned that sort of in passing, but that, that's really impressive. I mean, they, these are often really rigorous and I, I mean, that has an endorsement for what you're doing. And then the ability to actually use the data in a really meaningful way is, 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 is actually incredible. And I think most, most states actually put that in the public domain. So presumably anybody that wants to look and see what you've done or wants to inspect it can also go and review their assessment of you for the rate filing. For us, I might have buried that in the middle there, because for us, this, this is one of many things on a continuum of the things a carrier can do when they have better, more accurate data up front. But, but from an industry standpoint, it's absolutely a game changer. And also, you've done a great job of being able to get your, say some of your clients, you know, be comfortable about you publicizing the name. I see you've got Hartford King, Kin, uh, Cincinnati on the, on the website. And I think you've got is it close to 30 companies now who are actually working with you as, as full clients? Yeah, we've got about 30 customers to date. It's not a small thing for a carrier to, um, to support, uh, you know, endorse usage of their logo or give you a quote. But, you know, we've been very, very privileged to have a handful do so, right? We've, uh, you know, I think we have announcements, you know, including Security First, uh, State Auto, The Hartford, Cincinnati Financial, uh, CSAA, which is a part of AAA, uh, Nephila Capital, which is now part of Markel, XL Catlin, or, or which is now part of AXA XL, have all been announced. And, and again, as you mentioned, there's many more customers as well. Now, well, congratulations. And also congratulations on getting their legal teams to, to approve that. It's sort of a frustration for many that the insurance industry wants to support innovation, but yet the legal team don't want to talk about who they're working with. So you know, no one can really figure out who's really making success yeah. versus who's just making a lot of noise, but not necessarily doing the real work. When you're looking at in reinsurers and you've got a very large portfolio, is it hard for them to see the value on location by location risk that you're offering? We have gotten asked, hey, at the end of the day, what we do is correct more important, you know, more, more accurate information on a, on a location specific basis. Then by the time you've aggregated that into a portfolio, don't, you know, location specific errors just sort of 
all come out in the wash, so to speak, when you aggregate into a portfolio. And, and what we found time and again is that's actually not the case. The errors in Seedon's books aren't random errors that, that kind of net out neutral. They're, they're structural errors because different carriers kind of have different human policies, different ways of, of writing their business. And you can actually see that some of those things move in a structural direction. You know, they might overweight hip roofs or underweight hip roofs based on the way that they underwrite risk or roof condition, for example. And so what we found is that the distinctions we see do hold on a portfolio-wide basis and can move seed and portfolio risk substantially. So we have reinsurers that are fully live in production, actually pricing seed and risk with our appended data. And we're able to put that directly into the format that their current workflow consumes as they, as they basically leverage our information. And presumably the pricing model is slightly different if you've got somebody using your data for individual property lookups versus a, port, a, a reinsurer with a large portfolio we're able to offer kind of pricing that's appropriate for the use case. Some of our customers may have a 100x higher quote volume than, than another because of the nature of the use case, be it reinsurance or let's say a, a marketing use case even. And, and those, those have absurdly large quote volumes per the value of, of a specific address determination that they're making. Yeah, we could have a whole discussion around how to price for value and, and fairness, but uh, we've already got half an hour just for this topic. So let, that's, that was, yeah, that's very helpful. Talk about wildfire now, because yep. you, you're doing quite a lot of work on that. Clearly, it's, it's very topical. Uh, when we spoke before, kind of, you mentioned that one of the things you look at is the extent to which there is vegetation around a house or, or not as one of the measures of, of wildfire risk. But you know, presumably, you've, you've unfortunately just given what's happened, but you've learned a lot in the last few years. It's interesting to hear a little bit about where you're, where you're taking things next. Living out here in California, we are absolutely ground zero for wildfire risk uh, uh, at the moment, unfortunately. Not only is this a huge uh, issue for our industry, it's, it's, it's a huge you know, humanitarian issue out here. We've been having kind of rolling power outages as a preventive measure to kind of cut down on sparking new wildfires. So it's, it's a significant issue. The total damage associated with wildfire has just ballooned the last several years. I think everybody in our industry broadly understands that. The second thing people have come to understand is the prior ways that we've used to analyze risk in this space are, are really just outdated and, and not effective. So we basically looked at this problem and said, well, how can we help solve that? And there's very clear kind of wildfire standards published by CAL FIRE that really speak about this notion of defensible space. So what have you done to you know, remove fuel loads from your property uh, in particular and create, create a defensible space radius uh, 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 to protect your, your structure? So these are not kind of new concepts that we have to in, invent or evangelize. What we've done is basically come up with an algorithmic way to make that information available to our customers for physical structures in their portfolio or in seed and books they might be considering and do that instantaneously at scale. So artificial intelligence algorithms will zoom in on a specific property. Uh, they'll identify the structures and they'll identify all the trees, shrubs, and other fuel loads. And then they will measure the distances from the structures to any adjacent fuel loads, which can be trees, can also be other structures, for example and then give a quantifiable score, which basically says this is, and it's not just a one to 10 score, it's, it's much more detailed, much more rigorous than that. So it's really what percentage of fuel load is in increasing concentric ring around the structure. And that, that ends up being a, uh, a way to 
disambiguate between multiple structures who may be in the same kind of macro wildfire risk band, but but have very different property-specific defensibility measures in place. And what about just generally sort of vegetation in the areas where the fire may initiate? So you've, you've, you, I think we were talking about there is in the proximity of the house, but are you also looking at the sort of level of you know, dead trees, which I think is increasingly a problem in California, and as part of this, what the, the reason wildfires have got so significant? But can you look at it on a sort of a bigger scale so you can see you know, where the wildfires might start, how they might spread, as well as just individual property level? We have a fundamental tension in our in our organization between trying to remain laser focused on on kind of the next relevant commercial thing for for our customers and you know all the great stuff we can do to kind of remain a bleeding edge technology company. We see the major part of the gap has been on the on the property specific. How do you distinguish between specific individual risks uh, that might share? Uh, a wildfire zone, but you know, if you stay tuned for the future, you might see some more, some more broad brush, complex things, things coming out of our R and D efforts. There's a tension for every successful CEO, which is on one hand, you, you sort of see all the exciting, interesting things you can be doing, but on the other hand, you've got to stay focused and deliver where people are going to spend the money and, and getting the balance right. I guess there's a difference between success and failure. This goes back to like a core kind of philosophical point for us is really treating customers as our partners. And by establishing and continuing to invest in those collaborative relationships, it helps us ensure that the incremental effort we do spend on an item, you know, is actually not only theoretically interesting, but impactful in the real world. And, and, you know, that continues to be our guiding light in terms of, you know, how we prioritize our work. And on the topic of new things, when you have announced recently change detection and property chronicle as two initiatives. Can you just say a few words about those? So here the basic concept is I not only want to know what's happening for a given property at a given point in time, but but I'd like to understand the impact, you know, what has happened on that property or in that property associated with that property over a period of time. Right. And this can be what's happened in that property predating uh, a carrier's interest in in insuring that property, or it can be the median policy, homeowner's policy in, in, in the U.S. is about eight and a half years. You're looking at a significant amount of time over which that structure can change, things around that structure can change, certain environmental things can change, conditions can change. And so, you know, we, we, we do a good job looking not only persistently at a given location and understand how it's evolving, but we're looking you know, at the surrounding areas and understanding how those things are evolving and, and, and getting a view on, on how that might change risk, right? And it can be for the better or, or for the worse. If you get tree growth, you know, this could end up being, you know, a wind missile risk. This could end up being a wildfire risk. And, you know, a carrier might want to proactively engage with, a, with an insured and, and, and talk to them about uh, risk mitigation uh, techniques they can take. You know, on the flip side, let's say a property incurs damage and uh, replaces the roof. We, we know roofs uh, uh, lead to, to a huge fraction of all, of all losses. And so that is now arguably a much safer property. And uh, both new carriers as well as current carriers might want to be aware of that. The current carrier might want to proactively take steps to retain that client, whereas uh, new carriers might have more confidence kind of quoting that, that business. I just wanted to run just a broader question, really, as you, as you look out there at the landscape of other technology companies that have started over the last five or six years, it seems you're one of the few that have actually been able to 
developed technology and actually engaged directly with the insurance companies uh, and also particularly those that are not uh, MGAs are actually you know, doing some of the, the transaction themselves. But I mean, how do you, how do you see things evolving with people that are building technology? Are, are, are we seeing a shift to more companies that are going to acquire partners or platforms to get access to the insurance companies, or would you still see us a strong theme of organisations like yourself where you can sort of stand alone and develop relationships without needing to you know, to sort of work on the closely or on the back of some of the, the larger organisations or platforms out there? Most carriers are of a significant scale, reinsurers as well. And with that scale, and for good reason, I think relatively conservative businesses, you know, they, they get penalized for, for being wrong on things. The bar is very, very high. So I can't say it's been an easy road for us these past five years. It's, it's, it's been really challenging. The key has been we have brought and continue to bring a highly differentiated, unique, high-impact solution. What I've seen not be successful are, you know, solutions that are less differentiated, you know, have a real hard time and may have a bit more success kind of going through a platform. But, you know, this industry absolutely is willing to listen if you have a solution that is clear and demonstrated and and has real unique high impact. Well done, but it sounds like you've got a few scars along the way, but... uh, Given you were founded in 2014, you've and you've got some strong clients now. I think you're probably through that uh, that, that sort of tougher stage, which is getting yourself known and, as you say, differentiating yourself from everybody out there and, and proving proving the value. But so on that theme, you're uh, you've got a team coming across to London in January and would like to be working with you, uh, putting together a workshop. But and you mentioned briefly the reinsurers, but of course London's also a big market for writing the. ENS non-admitted business, but can you just talk a little bit about what your what your sort of expectations yeah. or hopes are for the UK and maybe yeah. more broadly in Europe? We do have some scar tissue, but you know we've come through. You know I think we've got a a very strong reputation, a bunch of referenceable customer successes to point to, and we've really built a, a significant and growing business here focused on continental US based risk. We're privileged to count leading top-tier property insurance carriers, nationwide carriers, specialty carriers, super regionals, all of them as loyal customers and partners, as well as some of the world's kind of smartest reinsurers. Um, We have a a few customers that are Lloyd syndicates. Uh, We've got some significant Bermuda-based reinsurers as well. You know, and to date, we've been largely focused on U.S.-based property risk. Eventually, we will be moving beyond continental U.S.-based risks, but even before that, we are looking at, at, at other writers, both global reinsurers as well as you know, other Lloyd Syndicate partners that write uh, non-admitted uh, direct or uh, reinsurance as well. This represents our initial push into the London market in earnest. And, and so that's something we're very excited about. Good. No, we're looking forward to it. We, we've, there's a very uh, enthusiastic and interested audience over here. And, and as you know, London is a little bit like Las Vegas every day in the sense that you know, they've... You know, talk about insurance insure tech connect and that you've got yeah seven thousand people or many more talking about innovation or within a square mile so i'm very much looking forward to putting together a a lively discussion with a number of people from the market when you're when you come over or when the team come over in in january more broadly around one one thing that always fascinates me with you know people like yourself that have got a huge amount going on and also need to stay abreast of what's happening in the industry technology and your clients how, how do you personally just collect information and, and process what's out there? You know, what's your sort of favorite means of, of getting hold of that? I try to always be very disciplined with how I'm spending my time. 
this means less kind of passive listening, but, but, you know, I have a list of things I actively want to learn about and I, and I try to prioritize and, and make sure that I'm spending my time appropriately. And I look at the right, the right sources. Um, but you, know, you don't want to be totally closed minded to new things coming in. So, you know, to just exploring new channels is, is important. We have a core discipline of, again, treating our customers like clients and partners and, and, you know, you know, trust and candor are one of, you know, some of the core values of our organization. And so what that means is it, it, it leads to a lot of, let's say, high candor, high content conversations with our customers and partners. And we're able to kind of bring in a lot of information that way. Some of those things just don't fit our, our strategic roadmap, but, but some of those things do. And sometimes we change our strategic roadmap to accommodate. And so that's, that's really valuable. I think it's active listening to customers, actively listening to employees, empowering employees to kind of be discovery driven. You know, those are some of the tools, but there's not really a, a secret silver bullet, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, it's really interesting in this world of you know, digital, increasingly digital, how much we all still rely on personal contact. I mean, we're, we're, we're doing it now. And I, I think that's the sort of well, it's balancing that input, isn't it? One of our core principles as an organization is really building high trust relationships. And this extends to our, our customers, our employees, and our investors. And, you know, one thing I do love about this industry is it's real people trying to solve real problems. And, and we're in highly kind of recurring relationships with our customers. So, so it, it's a natural incentive to sort of take the long road. There's a few media sources on this industry that I really like, but um, you know, there's a lot of junk out there, right? There's a lot of hype. And you know, the good news is that we, we've kind of eschewed that just culturally, but you know, our customers have come back to us and paid us one of the bigger compliments I've, I can think of, w- w- at least in my mind, which is, hey, look, you know, we really love the, what you guys are doing because when you tell me something's going to happen or you're going to do something, we can believe that that's true. And I think that allows us to kind of cut through a lot of the clutter and the noise. And, you know, unfortunately, I do think you, you see some of these more um, hypey events or, or, or media articles and, and, you know, it just ends up being a lot of noise. So, Ron, I've, I've lost you a lot of questions. Is there anything you'd like to tell me that, that I haven't asked you or you just like to talk about before we wrap up? I've always enjoyed our interactions. We've spent some time together, you and I, in London and also over here on the West Coast. I'm thrilled that we're in the position we are to, and I think we're really well resourced not only to continue to serve our domestic core market, but but I'm excited about about kind of this next phase for our business, and and just thrilled to have the partnership and an ability to extend. So no, thank you. No, well, thank you for your support for Interstate London, and uh, I mean, 25% of our listeners, at the last count, were, were actually in the US. So we you know though we've got London in the name, we're increasingly global. Well, Ryan, sorry, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to join you in, in Laguna Nigal next week. So I'll, you'll have to uh, have, a, have a glass overlooking the ocean for me and, and think of us back here in, in rather dark and gloomy London. But it's been great carving out some of your time, particularly knowing how busy you are. So uh, thank you very much and you know, best wishes for the next, next few months. And again, yeah, look forward to seeing your team in, uh, in January. Great, Matthew. Thrilled to connect. Thank you so much. Well, if you haven't already found it, we're publishing our transcripts from most of the podcasts on the website now. And we're also starting to release some of these as more condensed interviews, both on the website and through LinkedIn. So if you want a reminder of what you heard or just want to send some information on to somebody else, then keep a lookout for those in the next few weeks. We're also building out our schedule of events for Instec London for 2020. And with a growing list of global members, we've got some excellent guests lined up for our podcast next year. 
Now, if you'd like to know more about our membership and how you or your favorite CEO can get on the podcast, drop me an email or send me a message via LinkedIn.